This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 to 20. Today, we come to the next to last sermon in our series entitled, The Life of Joseph, Lessons on Faithfulness and Forgiveness. This morning, I want to speak to you about when X marks the spot, when X Marks the spot. Genesis chapter 48. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Read through verse 20. Please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples. I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they'll be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age. He could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name, the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. May they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Yet Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. He said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day 
And he said, in your name will Israel produce, pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When was the last time that God did something in your life that totally caught you off guard? When was the last time God did something that thoroughly astounded you? We live in a culture where we know a lot about a lot of things. We know a lot about medicine and mechanics, farming and pharmaceuticals, education and economics, athletics and academics. There's a lot that we know a lot about. The temptation is to take that mindset into our relationship with God. So in far too many cases, we construct and constrain theological boxes whereby we stick and stuff God Almighty. In far too many spiritual circles, our understanding of God has become far too predictable. We know how God is supposed to act. We know what God is supposed to do. We know how God is supposed to intervene. And oftentimes, our understanding of God has become far too predictable. It's in this moment that I'm reminded of that work entitled The Holy Other, written by Rudolf Otto, who describes God as the mysterium tremendum, tremendous mystery. Yes, there's something about God that we can figure out, for he's given us his word. He's revealed himself fully in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there still is something about God that is tremendous mystery. I'm reminded of Wayne Grudem's work in systematic theology, where he says that not even all of eternity will be long enough for us to figure out God. Even though we'll be there forever, we still won't get to the bottom of God. We still won't be able to figure him out exhaustively. I am reminded in this moment of that great work by J.B. Phillips entitled, Your God is Too Small, where he indicts many of us as crafting a God made in our own image. And whenever we make a God in our own image, what we've done, my friend, is we have crafted a God who is far too small. We've got to have a God who astounds us. We've got to have a God that shocks us. We've got to have a God that surprises us. We've got to have a God that cannot be figured out. Our God is not predictable, even though he responds in various ways in our life. When was the last time that God did something in your life that totally caught you off guard? The story I just read for you is a story that catches Joseph off guard. He's not anticipating this. You'll recall that Joseph had revealed his true identity to his brothers. They were shocked. They were petrified. They were afraid, thinking that somehow over the last 23 years that Joseph had nursed a grudge. Instead, he was looking for an opportunity to extend grace. He did not want to retaliate. He wanted to be reconciled to his brothers. He said, you go back to the family farm. You get daddy Jacob. You bring my father and your families and all the livestock, and you're going to live here in the land of Goshen in the northeastern territory of Egypt. 
you can well imagine that it took quite a while to convince daddy that Joseph was alive. After all, he thought to himself, my sons are lying to me. There's no way that my son, who I've lost some 23 years ago, could be alive today. Yet, eventually, the boys convinced their father that Joseph was alive and that he was none other than the prime minister of Egypt, second command over all the nation. Only Pharaoh outranked him. You can well imagine the sweet reunion that occurred when Father Jacob and his sons and their family and the livestock made their way to Goshen right there in Egypt, and Joseph was there to greet them. Oh, what a wonderful family reunion. Scripture says that Jacob brought 70 of his family members. He, he brought uh, all of his children and grandchildren, their spouses and all uh, the extended family, he even brought the livestock. When Pharaoh heard that these guys were professional farmers, he even gave them some of his own sheep. He said, you watch out for them. You, you raise them because you're a natural at this kind of thing. We are told in the previous chapter of Genesis 47 that Father Jacob was 130 years old. When he came to Egypt, he lived there 17 years. So by the time we catch up with Father Jacob, the patriarch in our passage, he's 147 years old. His beloved son, Joseph, is 56 years old. Our story is a story of blessing. We don't really fully understand blessing the way they did in the ancient text. There are times that we say, God bless you when somebody sneezes. Or a politician will end a rousing speech with God bless America. Or a little cute seven-year-old girl falls and she scrapes her knees. We help pick her up and we say, well, bless her little heart. Now, those are not bad renditions of the word blessing, but that's not what's described in our story. No, the, the blessing that's described in Genesis 48 is... It's more like a legal document than a concluding statement of a rousing speech. It's kind of as if uh, Father Jacob was probating his will, except he was still alive when he probated his will. It's, it's a legal document. It's, it's, a, it, it's a word that is as strong as the bond. It, it, is a, it is a spoken word that's as strong as the oaks of Shechem. Every father wanted to pass on blessing to his children. Oftentimes, that, that word of blessing, that word of favor was bestowed upon the firstborn son. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 that we receive some commentary about this family. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 where it says, Reuben was the firstborn. Yet when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. The patriarch does something that is not really expected. What's expected when it comes to the end of his life is for him to give a word of blessing to the oldest son, Reuben. But Reuben had made a mess of things. And so the father was not going to bless Reuben, not going to bestow upon him the favor of the family. You would think that if it's not the firstborn, it's the strongest. And certainly Judah was the strongest. 
History will prove that out of the tribe of Judah, they'll become a king, a king that is eternal, a, a king that is forever. The Lord Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. But Judah did not receive the blessing of the patriarch Jacob. No, Jacob reserved his favor to rest upon his beloved son, the favorite son, Joseph. And not just Joseph, but Joseph's two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, born to him while he was living in Egypt. Father Jacob is at the end of his life, 147 years old. He's dying. He gives word that the religious ceremony needs to take place soon. Joseph grabs Manasseh and Ephraim, make their way to where the father was reclining in the bed. And when Jacob heard that Joseph and his two sons had arrived, Israel, Jacob, rallied his strength, sat on the edge of the bed. This is not just a, a visit. This is a religious ceremony. This is something that is sacred. We are told that uh, Jacob was nearly blind. He is 147 for crying out loud. His eyesight is failing. When it says that he's 147, it really means he's 147. That's, that's pretty old, right? So he has every right for his eyesight to fail him just a bit. And so he's there and, and he begins this ceremony by sharing his testimony. He says, God appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel. God appeared to me at Bethel. He became very real to me. God made a covenant with me. He said that uh, I would be his people. He would be my God. That my descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. God made a covenant with me. He made an eternal promise with me. The same promise that was given to my dad and my granddad, Abraham and Isaac, was given unto me. And now I pass that on down to my grandchildren. He begins with his testimony. I love that about Jacob. Let me tell you, if you are in Christ, if, if you are a follower of the Lord, you've got a story to tell. You've got a testimony to share. And in this moment, it is the father who shares his story with his beloved son, Joseph. It's an emotional scene. He says, listen, I never thought I would see you again. And now I get to see you and I get to see your children. He asked the question, who is this that you've brought with you? He's not senile. He's not just ignorant, doesn't know who they are. But it's, it's, a, it's an intentional question because once you know the name of someone, then somehow you have authority over them. So he's asking his son, Joseph, who is this? And Joseph responds, these are my two sons. These belong to you. This is Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh, the older, Ephraim, the younger. And Father, I've brought them here so that you can adopt them into your family, so that you may bless them. The scripture goes into great detail about how this is done. And in verse 12, we are told that um, Israel was seated on the bed, and Joseph took Manasseh and Ephraim off the knees of Jacob, and they knelt before Father Jacob. Now, if you're not careful, you'll think to yourself, oh, that's cute. These are grandchildren sitting on the knees of granddaddy. That's cute. Little toddlers, little two-year-old boys sitting there. 
But if you do the math, you realize that Manasseh and Ephraim, they're not two and three. They're more like uh, 25 years old and 22 years old, respectively. I mean, if grandfather's 147 and daddy is 56, then certainly Manasseh and Ephraim, you do the math, they were born during the seven years of prosperity. They have to be somewhere in their mid-20s. They're somewhere around 25, 22 years old. So now the scene that two strong strapping men in their mid-20s are seated on their grandfather's 147-year-old knees, now that becomes a little bit awkward or creepy, right? But don't misunderstand what the ancient text is writing. When it says that they're on his knees, it, it, it's really a, a symbol. It's a, it, literally, it could be taken that they were seated beside him on the bed. That the knees were the place of, of a child rearing, of, of childbirth. And so the knees were the, were the place where uh, the author is telling us that now Manasseh and Ephraim, now they belong to Father Jacob. Not their daddy Joseph, but now Jacob. So Joseph takes his two sons and places them in front of his father, their grandfather. And Joseph is very intentional about this. He realizes that his dad is blind as a bat. He wants to make it as easy as possible upon the old man. He also understands that um, the right hand of blessing is symbolic of the favor that would be bestowed upon the older of the sons. So let's just imagine that I am Jacob and you are Joseph. So Joseph comes and he uh, kneels before his father and he's flanked by his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is the older. So he puts Manasseh in front of the right hand of his father, Jacob, which would have been on the left side of Joseph. He takes Ephraim and puts him on his right side in front of the left hand of his father Jacob. He's trying to make life easy on dad. So the only thing dad has to do is just reach his hands out, place them on the heads of his two sons, grandchildren, and bless them. Pretty easy move, just from here to here, from here to here. Easy. Make it simple for the old man. Just easy. The older one is right in front of your right hand daddy. The younger is right in front of your left hand daddy. Now let's go on with the ceremony and you do your stuff. You do what you need to do. But I've made it as easy as possible as I possibly can for you. And Father Jacob says, I appreciate that. Let's pray. So what does Joseph do? Joseph bows his head. You're supposed to bow your head when you pray. And where is Joseph? He's right there in the middle, right between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph has his head bowed. And I'm sure that as Father Jacob is praying, Joseph is going, mm-hmm, yes, yeah, amen, daddy, yes. And he's sitting there with his head bowed and his eyes closed, and he's worshiping the Lord and affirming what his father says. But unbeknownst to Joseph, Jacob does something that Jacob's not supposed to do. Father Jacob takes his right hand and doesn't go straight for Manasseh. He crosses over and touches Ephraim, the right hand on the younger son. And then he takes his left hand, crosses over and touches Manasseh. And in this position, this posture, Joseph is beneath him, head bowed, eyes closed, not knowing what's going on. And Daddy Jacob offers the ceremonial blessing. May the God before whom 
Abraham and Isaac walked. May the God who has been my shepherd all the days of my life, may the angel who has delivered me from all harm bless these boys. What a blessing. That's a good one, isn't it? He says, Lord, I want you to bless these guys. I want them to walk before you just like my grandfather and my father and myself. I want them to walk in the same manner, mode, and method as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's himself. I want you to bless them. I want you to protect them as a shepherd. After all, what is Jacob? He is a professional farmer. He knows what it is to say long before David will say it. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And the Lord has been the one who's been the divine messenger, the angel from the celestial city of heaven, who has always delivered Jacob from any, 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 any amount of harm. And so he's asking, Lord, what you did for me, do for these boys. All throughout the Bible, the, the word walk is synonymous with lifestyle. The word walk is, is how you live. So he's saying, Lord, help these boys to have distinctive devotion to the Lord. May they be distinctively devoted. May it be obvious that they belong to you. As obvious as the walk of Abraham and Isaac and my walk as well. Have you ever stopped to consider literally how Jacob walked? In Genesis 32, we're told an amazing story of how the Lord wrestled with Jacob all night long. It was an all-night wrestling match. The Lord and Jacob. At sunrise, the Lord says, what is your name? Once again, it's not because the Lord is an absent-minded professor. It's not because he's senile. But he knows that he's going to have authority over this. So what is your name? My name is Jacob, trickster. The Lord says, from here on out, you will be known as Israel. The word Israel means God touched or God healed. And in that moment, we are told that God touched the hip socket of Jacob, wrenched it, twisted it a bit. And from then on, Jacob walked with a limp. You ever stop to think about this? From then on, every time Jacob walked, he walked with a limp. Why? Because he was touched by the Lord. And if you're touched by the Lord, you will be changed. If you're touched, you're changed. And it's obvious. It was unrecognizable. It was unmistakable. When anybody saw Jacob walking from a great distance, they said, here comes Jacob. I can tell by his walk. This morning, it caused me to ask you, how are you walking before the Lord? How's your walk? I, I know you know how to worship, but how's your walk? I know that you know how to talk the right language, but how is your walk? How is your walk before a watching world? When they see you, do they see the swag of the Savior on you? 
Do they, do they see by your sovereign stride that you walk with a holy limp? Can the world see you and say, you know what? I know that's got to be a Christian. That's got to be a follower of Christ. I can tell just by the way they live. I can tell by the way they walk. How is your walk? You and I both know people who claim to be Christians, yet their walk looks just like the world. That ought not to be. If we are in Christ, we've got to walk with a sovereign swag. We've got to walk as if Jesus has touched us. And if he's touched us, he will change us. He will make an impression upon us. So we don't think the way that the world thinks. We don't value the things that the world values. We don't do the, the same things on Friday night that the world does on Friday night. People can tell because of the way you walk. So I'm asking you this morning, how is your walk? You do know that your walk talks. You do know that your talk talks, but you also know that your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You got it? Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talk is louder than your talk talk because how you live is louder than what you say. I know that you know how to worship. I know that you know how to speak the right language, but I'm asking this morning, how is your walk before a lost and dying world? Can they tell you've been touched by the Lord himself so that they see you from a distance? It's unrecognizable. Or it's, it's unmistakable. It is recognizable. It is memorable. You can't deny it. Here comes so-and-so. I can tell by the way they live. They've got to be a follower of Christ. The greatest indictment that the world could ever give us is if they talk about us and they say, is that person a follower of Christ? And the response is, I don't know. I think they go to church, but I don't know. They, they tend to be a pretty good person, but I, I, I don't know. The worst indictment that the church could ever be given by a lost world is when the lost world talks about individuals of the church and asks the question, are they Christ followers? And the response is, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. The world has to be sure. Jacob's prayer is that these boys will walk with distinctive devotion to the Lord. Let them walk like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let them walk with a holy limp so that it's obvious how they are living before the Lord and the world. All throughout the Bible, we are told in Isaiah chapter 2, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The prophet Micah, what does God require of us? To seek justice, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If Jesus has touched you, he has changed you. It's got to affect belief and behavior. It's got to affect language and lifestyle. It's got to affect worship and walk. It's got to affect how you live 
on Sunday and how you live throughout the rest of the week. This is what Father Jacob is asking God to do in the life of Manasseh and Ephraim. Help them to walk in a distinctive way so they are recognized as belonging to you. That same prayer, we pray one for the other. There are British criminologists who say that some criminals can be arrested by gate recognition. What they say, what they mean by gate recognition is by a person's stride, the length of the stride, the weight distribution from one foot to the next. There's some British criminologist who will say that gate recognition is more reliable than DNA. It is more unique than a thumbprint. You can tell by how someone walks who they are. Church, don't miss that. You can tell who somebody is by how they walk. That's not just a British thing. That's a biblical thing. This is what Father Jacob is talking about. Make people know who they are by how these boys walk. Let them walk with distinctive devotion unto the Lord. I think that Jacob is thinking about his own walk. I think he's thinking about his own experience with the Lord. He had been touched and changed. He wanted these boys to be touched and changed. It's at this moment that Joseph peaks. Don't get mad at Joseph. You would have to. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, when somebody just prays and they go on and on and on and on, you kind of peek, open up one eye, like, what is going on up there? Right? This is what Joseph does. All of a sudden, he peaks. And he looks up and he sees that he's been crossed. He sees that, that uh, father has messed it up. He goes, oh, no, 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 daddy. No, you're really thoroughly messing this up. The right hand does not go on Ephraim. He's the younger. It goes on Manasseh. I put him right in front of your right hand, dad. Come on now. Come on. I'm just trying to help. Throw, throw a brother a bone. I'm just trying to help you out here. I put him right in front of your right hand and you go and mess it up. You go and cross it up. Your right hand goes on Manasseh. Your left hand goes on Ephraim. Manasseh's older. Ephraim's younger. I put him right in front of your hands, dad. Come on. Can't you do anything right? You know what the Father says? I know what I'm doing. You know what the Father says to you when you try to correct God? I know what I'm doing. I got this. It may not make sense to you, but I know what I'm doing. I got this. Father Jacob says, I, I may be blind physically, but I'm not blind spiritually. Both these boys are going to be great. But Ephraim, the younger, is going to be greater than Manasseh. And history will prove it to be, to prove it to be true. That both these boys, great nations, Ephraim, greater than Manasseh. You know what I've realized? When God does something unexpectedly, he does it spectacularly. When God does something unexpectedly, he always does it spectacularly. We don't expect God to create the heavens and the earth merely by speaking them to existence, yet that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to preserve Noah and his family in a big wooden boat, but that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to rescue the Israelites from Egyptian captivity and enable them to cross on 
dry land in the Red Sea, but that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to show up and protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, but that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to step out of heaven and step into earth some 2,000 years ago through the birth canal of a virgin girl so that he'd be born in a barn in Bethlehem, but that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to feed the multitudes with a few loaves and a couple of fish. That's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to heal the sick and uh, open the eyes of the blind to raise the dead, but that's exactly what he did. We don't expect God to die on the cross for all of our mess-ups, be placed into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, get up and rise again. But that's exactly what he did. We don't expect Jesus to ascend to the heavens with the promise that he's going to come back one day. But that's exactly what he did. We don't expect him to start the church and in one day have a revival where 3,000 people are saved. But that's exactly what he did. Whenever God does something unexpectedly, he always does it spectacularly. This morning, I wonder, what do you need God to do in your life? What, what, what do you need from God? You have stage four cancer, and you need healing. You have a marriage on the rocks, and you need help. You have a prodigal son or prodigal daughter. And they're far from home. You have economic crisis. And it's been going on far too long. It seems as if everything is turning against you. What do you need this morning? Can I tell you that what you need is mysterium tremendum. You need the God who is tremendously mysterious. Amen. You just come to him and allow him to do what he wants to do in your life. Don't tell him what to do. Don't try to lift his hand from here to there. Don't try to bark orders at him. Don't get on to him if he doesn't respond as quickly or decisively as you think he should. You just come, bow before the Father, and you just ask for this God to be mysterium tremendum. And I promise you it'll be enough. I promise you it will be enough. Because when God does something unexpectedly, he always does it spectacularly. So this morning, you come, kneel before him, and allow God to be God. He is mighty. He is majestic. He is merciful. And he's right here. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We do not want to put you in a box. We do not want to confine you and dictate unto you how you have to act or react. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging that you are God and we are not. So we bring our problems, we bring our children, we bring our marriage, we bring our concern, we bring our disease, we bring our, our, uh, uh, our sin, we bring everything that we are unto you. We just ask for you to do something spectacular. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.